looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. It's been a long time, fellas. It has. Here we are. I don't remember my own name. Yeah, I was What's like, your Who? name? <laughs> I think I'm Patrick. Okay. Uh, my name's Jamie. I'm Dan. <laughs> Congratulations. We remembered our name. We did it. It's been so long since we recorded. Yeah, it's been forever. It's been, just so everyone knows, it's probably been four months since we've recorded. Yeah. An, a regular episode, a regular discussion episode, mm-hmm. a long, long, been, long time. We've been talking the whole time, but it's it's just we, we were so backlogged with material that we're just now finally getting to record again. Patrick and, running uh, from the train, <laughs> running, fucking ducking through the window. It's been crazy. Well, <laughs> you know, we, there's, there's a lot coming up. You know, we should yeah. we should we should mention why we haven't recorded that much. For one thing, I am almost done, ish, scoring Gethsemane which is going to be released in a matter of two or three weeks at this point. He still hasn't listened to it, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't, know, I don't know what it's about. <laughs> a couple of hippos, right? It's a couple, couple of hippos in the desert. This is where hippos live. Um, and, uh, and we are hard at work. Dan especially is leading the charge on this. Our event is just around the corner. Yep, five months to go. I guess it's not really. Yeah. That's a big corner. Five, five months is like a pretty five months though. That's nothing. It's going to go by fast for us. Well, I mean, we're yeah. in, we're halfway through June already. It's crazy. The year's half over. How about that? And it's fucking 106 degrees here in Los uh, Angeles right now. Yeah. Oakland What's is What's the temperature too. like in Boston, Patrick? Oh, it's that hot. Is it really? No, it's, it's like 90. Actually, okay. no, today it was 75 degrees. But, but, but Patrick has, you can see I'm very tan. Patrick has central air. I have central air. Dan does not. He's been sweating <laughs> his balls me. off. Yep. My, <laughs> cats, my cats have been laying on the ground all day. Just like, please <laughs> shave me. I love how they, they just do like this. Their arms. They just yeah. like throw their arms Yeah, they're back. dying. Luxurious. Um, so Jude said something to me. To me. To me. <laughs> to me. Today. Uh, so in preparation for this episode, to me, uh, we were watching the. the I'm Jamey. Timmer. You know, it's been a while since we've seen the theatrical cut, because as we've mentioned on previous episodes, the final cut is the one that all three of us kind of relate to the most at this point. And uh, the, the previous time I'd seen the theatrical cut was on the plane back from England a, almost two years ago now to go see 2049. The one where you almost crashed? Yeah, the, yeah, with the flyover. <laughs> yeah. What's it called? A go-around. A go-around, yeah. Um, <laughs> l- little really did I know that like a month after, after recording that I was going to like be, you know... Dear friends with a fucking ATC professional. Now, now I have like all this like insight. But yeah, I didn't even know you back then. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so so it's, it's been a while since I watched it, and so tonight, in preparation for this, I had like three scenes that I wanted to unpack, and I had the boys watch it with me, and we uh, started with the with the beginning because I wanted because there's a lot of changes that are kind of slight towards the beginning, but one of them, obviously, is the first voiceover, which is just you know shocking when you hear that again after being so used to not having that happen in that moment and um 
and we're watching Deckard, you know, walking around outside, sitting down at the White Dragon, etc., getting accosted about um, going back to the station. And and Jude turns to me and he goes, "Why are they outside all the time?" And I was like, "That's a really good fucking point because it is miserable. It's like pouring rain. Everybody hates each other. Everybody's bumping into each other and yelling." And yet they're eating like they're like the restaurants are out in the street. Like nobody is actually indoors. And I think it's really interesting that like you have this movie that feels very kind of um, I don't want to say like constricted, but it, it feels almost claustrophobic a lot of the time because so many of the scenes are so dark and it's so kind of you know it's so it's so intensely lit and it's so uh, it, it's very compressed. Uh, and it's interesting that a lot of it actually happens outside and that being outside feels like you're inside because to me it doesn't even really register that they're outside because I'm just, I'm so used to seeing that shot you know but um it's interesting I don't, what, what do you guys think so I can give them an answer tomorrow why are they outside well, well I think Deckard's role who Deckard is as a cop that's what he does he's kind of walking around everywhere I mean he's also inside with Zora he's he's inside the apartment he's inside his own apartment he's inside Tyrell's I would say I don't feel like they're outside that much there's a couple of instances where they're going to and from like Pris is going from the streets into JF Sebastian's house but I've never thought about that though it's interesting I mean I don't know if there's an answer to it I just think it's just kind of life. You and I are outside. I was outside today, and then I came in. You know. Yeah, but but well, here's I guess here's a way to, to frame it. So you know, we all live in cities. Yo, dude, that uh, question sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you, you dumbass, six-year-old. <laughs> Who's your daddy? He's, he's almost six. Um, well, I think it's a good question because you know the three of us live in, in cities of, of various sizes and locations, and we're outside a lot, and it's never as crowded. Now, obviously, this is a megapolis, right? Los Angeles has millions and millions of people in it in this universe. I guess it already has millions of people in it, but it has like 18 million. Um, but uh, it's interesting that, for example, when they eat, when they go to the White Dragon, they all stay and eat outside, even though they're getting fucking bumped into by everybody and getting, um, you know, bothered and interrupted in the middle of their meal. Like, they're still, they're all, it's, it's a very communal outside experience, almost like you would see maybe I'm kind of answering the question now in a lot of Asian countries, you know, where I visited, like in, for example, I spent um, um, almost a month in Kathmandu and it was very much like that. And it was also similarly kind of oppressive because there was a, there was an oil embargo going on. So like the air was terrible to breathe and it was kind of dirty and crazy and there were cows running around the road. And, um, and yet everybody was outside. So maybe it has something to do with this sort of uh, Asian influence. I don't know. Dan, what do you think? Do you have any insight into that? Um, yeah, I have a comment for uh, both of the things you said. I think, uh, for one, I understood Jude's question as, like, not why is Deckard always outside, but why are there so many people outside? Like, if it's horrible yeah, that's, outside. Yeah, that's, that's what I meant. Right, yeah. like Chicago in the winter. Like, I, I don't know, because I haven't been in the winter, but I hear, like, people just don't go outside. They order everything in, and, like, you know, it's just miserable. Um, so to that part, I would say that it's a matter of uh, relativity and perspective. To me, it's not why is everyone outside? It's, these are just the people that are outside and it is crowded as fuck. Imagine how crowded those buildings are. The Tyrell pyramid alone is like a 700 story building full of, we don't even know, potentially apartments, luxury apartments, maybe plus all the corporation, all that. So there's, I mean, look at Deckard skyscraper, right? When he goes up on the 92nd floor, right? Like, so he's looking down on another 91 floors below him. Um, and again, the society is kind of stratified. We're sort of like the scum or the lower class people or the police officers who are forced to mingle with them are kind of 
in hell, so to speak, on ground level. Um, and everybody that can afford it is up high. So I think actually what you're seeing is just one small percentage of the people in super crowded LA and they're, yeah, like mostly lower class, poor people working and, you know, picking up garbage or going in and out. Um, secondly, I was going to say, I, I would agree with your comment about Asian cities, um, like Bangkok, certain neighborhoods in Bangkok, or if you go to like, um, a Chinese, uh, like a Chinatown in a non-Chinese, um, city, I think that it's really like that. There's just like stuff everywhere and people packed to the gills. Um, and I would also say that it's kind of interesting because I was trying to conjure up in my mind a time when I have felt like that when you were describing Kathmandu. And I was like, you know what feels like that? The, um, the grand, is it called Grand Central? The market that's in LA right across from the Bradbury building um, where we ate and walking that around fucking barbecue. Oh, <laughs> but walking around there and they're like, technically it's indoors. Right. But it's got these high ceilings and these sort of open like cargo, uh, areas. So it's like almost outdoors. And like that feels, yeah, so it's much. like a, there's a, a lot of air passing through. And exactly. Stuff, yeah. And, and so you have a lot of space above you as you would outside, but it is packed to the gills in there. And I mean, you walk right past a noodle bar that we tried to go to, but was way too busy. And that place is very blade runner feeling, which is, really kind of a coincidence. It's just strange that it's in so many shots of the film. You can actually read the sign, right? It's in the shot uh, when you're looking down and the Bradbury's on your left and you can see the big M on the building. You can see the fish market to the right because it used to be a fish market. Um, so yeah, I think there are areas in the world where you can find that. But um, yeah, those are kind of the things that came up. They don't advertise for killers in a newspaper. That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-blade runner. X killer. One thing that comes to mind, I think about is I was in the last time I was in San Francisco, which I was hanging out with you, Dan, but my cousin lives essentially in downtown San Francisco. And I took the train into downtown and I got off and I walked like the Bart, the Bart. Yes. I walked way farther than I thought. Totally. Um, although it's really cool. Actually, it's a great ride. Um, but I was walking down downtown San Francisco and the streets were full of people, full of people, but they weren't people who were living in the city. They were people who had nowhere else to go. And I think that's part of it is that, uh, and in parts of LA, it's the same way. There's tent cities. There's people all over downtown LA because they don't have anywhere else to go. Or if they sleep in a shelter, the shelter doesn't let them hang out during the day. So they're, they're on the streets until a certain time and then they're gone or wherever they have the places to go. So that's one factor that no one's talking to, which I think is kind of funny because it, it, it speaks to our perceptions of the lives that we live, that we're trying to think of why would people be on the streets? Really? I think at that point in, in the universe that Blade Runner is set up, this is what kind of capitalist society has done to people. It's not, not aside from, economic or i would say um not economic well there is economic devastation but there's also global devastation in terms of what's going on in the world um the climate climate change all of those things that we see parts of in 2049 i think the the economic status has just eviscerated society and people live where they can live whether that's in the in the alleys or under trashed or under boxes that they've made. I mean, even where I live, which is essentially the sprawling suburbs of Los Angeles, we have parts of 
these little kind of smaller downtown subdivisions where there's homeless sleeping in rows, like Skid Row, you know? I think that LA in 2019 feels like one big Skid Row. And there are certain pockets that people can, that go people go to the bars, but even the people in the bars, they don't seem like they're, they're super rich. They, they might have a little bit more than the people on the streets, but it's kind of like life on the street. This is what it means right. to be poor. And you have that, the low, the little guy, Deckard, on the streets with everybody else. Right. And they're already sort of derelict because they're, they're on world to begin with. Right. So that, so like being on world is almost like being in the street. Totally. They've been left behind the off world. Right. And then, and then among those people, many of them are left behind once again, by being left destitute and not having good living conditions and being out on the street. And you're going to say something. Sorry. True. No. Yeah. I, I, I didn't think about it like that, but also the interesting part is I don't feel like there are specifically a lot of, people depicted to be homeless people in those scenes. Like there are the um, little people, not tiny people um, that jump up on Deckard's car and are like ripping gear off of it. Obviously they're not in great shape. You know, they need to steal stuff to make money. They're petty criminals, I guess. Um, And you see people in interesting outfits and some of them are dirty and stuff, but like you kind of don't see the quintessential like homeless guys sleeping in like a doorway or something like that. Like that's not depicted in the film. I, I never really noticed. Right. That. But what is depicted is, is the, so, so sure. Like that's not necessarily answered, but what is clear is that these people are there because that is better than whatever else they have to go to. Like they're they're Cause they're not commuting, right. They're not like going to work and back. Like they're kind of just sitting there milling around doing various things. So like to them, that's as good as going home if there is a home and if there's not a home, that's, that is, that's it. Right. Um, it's funny though. Like to me, the, the first thing that it made me think of when he asked that was, um, what a brilliant storytelling decision it was to have so many of the establishing shots before you get too used to the spinners flying over the city. And these just incredible vistas, you're brought right down to ground level to a scene that's totally believable and real and that we've all seen, you know, it's like Halloween walled city or something. You're seeing a very earthy, very, our universe scene. While you're aware because of because of a few previous shots, you're aware that there's this greater world with flying cars and with amazing things going on. But the reality is the experience that you're going to be experiencing through these characters is very earthy and very grainy and very dirty and very human and very uh, terrestrial. And that's what I think is, you know, we talked uh, when we did that crossover episode a while ago about how it's uh, part of why we we're not necessarily cyberpunk fans, you know, in general, but we love the cyberpunkness of Blade Runner is again because it's story driven and it comes out of like deglorifying these things that are so easy to glorify because it's not about that, it's about the story and it's about the reality of it. The charmer's name was Gaff. I'd seen him around. Brian must have upped him to the Blade Runner unit. That gibberish he talked was city-speak, gutter talk, a mishmash of Japanese, Spanish, German, what have you. I didn't really need a translator. I knew the lingo every good cop did. But I wasn't going to make it easier for him. I'll take your point a little bit further, too, because I, uh, when you started talking, I thought you were going to go in a different direction. Then you made an excellent point. But um, another trick to the storytelling, especially when you only have really one street set and you have to like rearrange it and make do and, and create a lot with that and make these tight shots so that you can't see what's above it, et cetera, et cetera. But also by doing that, um, okay. So the film does 
have other, you know, it has the aerial shots and has all that. But by showing this zoomed in view of the city that's dirty and gritty, once you pull out and you're now seeing the spinners flying over all kinds of tall buildings and all these streets, your mind is now filling in all that space. So you're imagining how many more streets there are like that jam packed with dirt and acid rain and all these garbage and people and food and all that. So that's, that's a really, um, that's a really good point. I think that, that, that goes along with, um, what you started. Yeah, totally. What's interesting about that. Oh, go ahead, Patrick. Well, I was, I was about to close. I was just going to say, I think the moral of the story is watch this with kids because they'll have, they'll, they'll notice things that you don't necessarily think about, you know? No, uh, last thing I was going to say was as when we open up into Blade Runner and we're, it's like, it's like we're in a spinner and we're going towards the Tyrell corporation. And then there's other scenes too, where Deckard gets in the spinner and he flies up and we're down in this dirty living space, several different living spaces and it's dirty and it's, it's oppressive. Um, but then as you ascend, it becomes cool. You know, there's this whole different, like, cyberpunk becomes, like, there's this thing about, like, I'm in a group that's devoted to cyberpunk, and it's very interesting because people pose questions like, how many people live cyberpunk in there? And I'm thinking, not that everyone misunderstands what cyberpunk is, but the whole idea is that the aesthetic and the reality of cyberpunk is dark and oppressive and people are kind of finding what they can to live by and whether that's augmented realities or augmented body parts, it's not fun. Um, but I do think that there is this whole idea that once you get above all of that, it becomes, Oh wow, this is awesome. We're in the spinner. But then when we get lower and we get, and we're, when we're at Pris's level and she's dressed the way she's dressed and she's walking on the street, She's just essentially a homeless woman on the street, walking down the street, looking for some place to go. Obviously, she has motives, but there's, it just, it really shows the dichotomy between what life looks like from above and what life is like on the ground. It's very, and there's very something different. so poetic about that because, yes. well, so so two two quick things, and I know we got to move on, but just two quick things that I, I wanted to mention is that. Um, Partly, you can tell that that's what they're going for from a storytelling angle because of, of Vangelis' scoring there, which is like one of the great movie themes ever ever made. I think like that that introductory theme when the, when the, when you first fly over Los Angeles, and that comes back most of the times that he sits in the spinner in some form, right, as a motive. That melody that feels like you're soaring into the future or something. It's very aspirational. It's major key. It's very beautiful. It's just this expansive thing. And then you go down to the street, and it doesn't sound like that. And it's right; it sounds like a, like a crazy, bizarre marketplace, right? Um, and I think it's that. It's like it's almost like you're being lifted up, and then when you get up there, it's like you could see for miles and miles and miles. But the reality is, and this is the other point, is that you can't because you're not off world. You're still there. It's just like getting high, right? Like when you get high, eventually you're not going to be high anymore, and you're going to come back and be and be in real life again. And it's still the life that you left when you took that hit, right? Not saying don't get high, but I'm but I'm saying we can all relate to that, <laughs> to that feeling, right? Which is that, like you think you're or escaping be high you're, all the time, <laughs> just kids. always be loaded. Patrick says, yeah. "Get loaded, kids." <laughs> right, but it's it's like you you will always come back. Whereas the people that are already off world, they don't have to deal with any of this shit. They flew long ago, and and now they're living in that spinner reality, right? Where they have slaves doing all their shit for them, and they're you know the beautiful people with the money and whatever they want to do, and everybody back back home back here can they can dream about it and they can almost touch it but they can't really and that i think is real real storytelling poetry and um and i just want to thank jude for making me think about that thanks jude so thanks yeah. buddy it's awesome so we're really here tonight today it's daytime for me and 
Dan, but it's not for Patrick, uh, to discuss the theatrical cut. And I just watched it today. It's been a long time since I'd seen it. I had a lot of preconceived ideas as to what I thought I was going to see, just because there's a lot of discussion about the narration and people love it. And even on Dangerous Days, you talk to people who love the narration. They still love it. It's their favorite. And then there's people who are like, oh, no, the narration, I, I would much prefer the 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 director's cut or the final cut or whatever. And so knowing what I know, knowing what we've discussed, I thought, okay, I'm going into this. And most of the time I'm going to be like, Oh, I don't, mm. and I really wasn't. I, the narration is sparse. There's a lot of breathing room for the world that we're in. Um, I think that there were points up with the narration that were like nail hammer bang, like, come on, it's a little ridiculous. But it also didn't conjure that old noir feel the way that I remembered it doing it just, but maybe it's because I've been conditioned by the final cut. I don't know, but I, I found it really surprising and I thought, wow, this was, I mean, the things that I noticed that took me out of the film weren't the narration. It was when Deckard is down by the Bradbury building and that spinner drops down and says, what are you doing here? And you can see the cables pulling that spinner up. And when it drops, and it, when it first drops down, it's raining. And then when it pulls up, it's not raining at all, and it's dry. And you, the cables like are as clear as day. And I was like, I've never noticed that. I've never noticed that because on the final cut, all of that is gone. And that's the only film that I watch. Um, and then there was a couple other scenes with cables and just a little bit, you know, some things that kind of brought me out of it. But essentially I felt like I was seeing a film that's very similar, except for some very specific things that we'll get into later, like the ending um, that reminded me a lot of the final cut. Like I felt like, wow, this film isn't that far from the vision of the final cut. It's not this like, Oh, it pulls me out of it. I mean, I don't think the, the narration is the end of the world. I don't prefer it, but if I was left with, this copy of Blade Runner, I'd be fine with it. I mean, we that's all we had for a long time. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like a different set dressing on something or like a different outfit. And sometimes that outfit kind of fits in. Other times it clashes like crazy, like when you notice little, little issues like that. And yeah, the other thing that's really difficult, and again, I... I sort of wanted to go into this conversation knowing that there are people looking forward to this episode because this version of the film is their favorite, has always been their favorite. They never liked the final cut or I got into a pretty heated debate, respectful, but heated debate on uh, fields of Calantha recently. Violent. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the person is dead now. <laughs> Dan is a proponent of nonviolence. Thank you very much. All right. Can we go now? Um, <laughs> I was trained to kill a long time ago, but I, I just, I didn't do that. Um, and the person really had an issue with sort of directors or artists in general revising their work. And he was like, no, like that's how it's supposed to be. The glitches and the errors, like make it the film that it is. And, you know, I, I tried to have a sort of logical kind of argument where I was like, well, I agree with you that revision for revision's sake is a bad thing. And there are examples we can point to of, again, not even speaking for my personal opinions, but just in certain fan groups, how most of the fans feel. And if you look at um, the <coughs> Star Wars, right. So the Star Wars trilogy is a great example of sort of like, 
it really has that feeling that Lucas did that because he had this new technology and really wanted to put some CGI in there because he'd been waiting for a long time to be able to do that. And the results kind of speak for themselves. And most fans are like, when are they going to re-release these films without all that bullshit? And then the other example I used was um, Steven Spielberg, who himself regretted this decision and went back and changed it. But when he went into E.T. and replaced all the guns with walkie-talkies out of like a liberal politically correct move i guess and he realized himself that that was a bad move later where it's like okay i should have just you know it's like what are you gonna do next like you can't go into something like rambo and do that you know not that that's spielberg but my point being that there's a difference between revision for revision's sake and revision when you're like okay i never got a chance i mean we talk about fincher's alien 3 all the time you guys have had that conversation and there's a difference between a director who is unhappy with his work because he was his hand was kind of forced and he didn't have as much control over the film as he would have liked um and these things that are for not good reasons so of course we've talked at length and we'll have an interview soon uh or i guess in the past now with uh charles de Lazarico where he talks about the decisions they made and what they changed and anyways um and on that note i'll finish with uh it's also always been really difficult for me now that i mostly watch the final cut to rewatch the theatrical cut with like fresh eyes because you have been impacted and affected by this other famous version of the film that you've seen. So it's really difficult to like pretend that you haven't seen that and just go back and watch the original for what it is. So like, you can do it, but you have to like focus to do that. So it's a, it's a different experience for sure. First of all, what was so funny, Patrick? Oh my God, you, you're fucking comparing Rambo to ET, Dan. <laughs> really, you're <laughs> Rambo to ET. First of all, First Blood is an awesome film, and I just rewatched Ugh. it recently. Um, yeah, but it is not fucking ET. It's not about a. a it's not a, a, a wonderful story about a fucking <laughs> alien baby that loves Reese's. Yes, yes. Lands. Where I was trying to go with it is that you can't just like go in and like remove guns from a film, like. But of course, in Rambo, the guy, okay, maybe it's a bad yeah, Rambo is like is like about guns though. That's I think that's the difference. Okay, fine. I'm, Although I'm, now look, I'm picturing a crossover with like fucking ET with a bandolier on, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my brain's been cooking all day long, so I'm very tired. <laughs> Which you can tell because the Charles Lazarica episode has not. I corrected it. myself, but you did. You, you traveled it's out back by this time. point. He did well, a great will, job it on it. Been it sounds out for, fantastic. Yeah, it was a great just, episode. Mis, just mag, magisterial. I, I hate you guys. Why, why do I do this again? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I do this. Listen. So, to, so here's the thing. I have complete empathy for people who prefer the theatrical cut, and I hope that people totally. listening to this who prefer the theatrical cut write in with your typical eloquence and tell us why. I have had this has come up many times, as I told you guys, but not the listeners. Um, David Leach and I, the, the guy who is, is editing the the comics, had a, a really kind of long conversation about this after our um, Minnesota interview, where he was telling me about how to him the theatrical cut was will always be the definitive version because it's the version that he fell in love with and he, he will never get it out of his head. There, are, there is a, an, a you know a generation of people. My friend Steve from Australia, who I've, who's going to come on a show too, who to them, that is what Blade Runner will always be because that was how they fell in love with the movie. I think age has something to do with it. Um, and I also think it has something to do with kind of how it imprints on us, you know? All three of us, I know we've talked about, but I'll speak personally in, in my case. I did not, I was not madly in love with Blade Runner before the final cut. 
I loved it as a sci-fi movie. It was it was always something that I, you know, if anybody would ever want to talk about it with me, I would fucking dive into it. But it wasn't something that I really, it wasn't like a big part of my life. And the final cut kind of made it a big part of my life. And it spoke to me in a different way, probably because I was at the age where it would hit me like that. So I want to just, I'm saying this to preface my the comments that will come. I want to make it very clear that this is all subjective and this is all, you know, our personal opinions. And, um, and I think that, uh, and, and I, and I have empathy for you who like the, the theatrical cut more because I have been heartbroken by what happened with Star Wars. <laughs> and I know many of us have, but that, that to, to me and my wife, we're both huge Star Wars people. That's, that's been heartbreaking. You know, like the fact that we can't get a copy of it. I mean, like we have, we know people who have VHS transfers that still work. I don't have a fucking VCR anymore. So, dude, you know, we had to give those back. Ask me, dude. I have the Blu-ray of the Despecialized Edition, all three of them. What the fuck, Jamie? Are you what? just telling me this live on air? No, I've always I can get you I can get you Blu-rays of all of them. Okay, well, fucking send me the Blu-rays then. Thank okay, you. Okay, okay. I we'll appreciate talk, that. <laughs> but that would be great because this is killing know? me, and and I, it's it's, <laughs> it's 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 so sad because to me when I watch those movies now, they don't feel like they're you know mine anymore. I feel like some of my ownership has left. The reality is that we don't ever own these things, right? But in our hearts, we do because they're part of our identity. And when something in our identity changes against our will, it can hurt a lot. So I, I get it. But the theatrical cut sucks compared to the final cut. <laughs> uh, well, I, well, that's the thing. You know, I, I really expected, based off of some heated conversations, you know, and I, I don't know if, Dan, you were alluding to a conversation that we we were having, but there was someone who was really like, no, this is this is the film that they released. This is the film that exists, period, end of story. And I was like, whoa, like, why are you, like, it was so decisive. It was so like a, such a finalized or a, a finalization, like, nope, this is it. That's it. This is the only thing that, that exists. And then we were talking about like, well, this isn't the original intent. And this person who I can't remember was like, well, it doesn't matter what the intent was. This is what they released. And so this is what it is. And yeah, it was just, it was just very curious. But on the other hand, I've heard people talk about how much they don't like the theatrical cut and I expected it to be having not seen it in so long to, to be terrible, to be like, Oh, this is cringeworthy. It really wasn't. I, I don't know if it's just because maybe in my head in my subconscious, I had the final cut playing alongside it. And I, did you I, not think the ending was cringeworthy? Oh, I did. I did. We'll get to that. Um, the ending is ridiculous. It's absolutely, it's, I don't, it's not even, I don't even know what the, they just, you can tell someone else took control and they kind of, David Fincher that and said, nope, we're taking this movie back from you and we're making it, you know, and what happened to the movie? It didn't really perform well. Not to say that it would have performed better with a, a different ending, but it could have. Um, but I also think that Blade Runner is a work of art at its core. It is not any type of science fiction film that anyone will see. Like it's just unlike anything else. The only other film that's like it is its sequel. Rambo. Rambo. Yeah. First blood. But it's I really, I, I really didn't mind the the voiceover, the narration, not whatsoever. It was really okay. Um, yeah, and I again, I'm just shocked that I I didn't mind it because there's been so many intense discussions about it. Now, if we are going to move on to the ending, I mean, yes, you see, you know, obviously in the final cut. Wait, hang on, Rachel, and but can we wait before we go to the ending real quick? Sure, let's just have one more round real quick. Sure. Yeah, well, I have a thought too, but Dan, Dan you, you go. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass it to you because I know that. Um, so, 
I'll let Patrick expound on this, but while we were offline, so my first comment, which I've made before on this show, but I'd like to reiterate it because it's the appropriate episode is that, um, you do learn a lot of valuable background and some interesting facts here and there through the voiceover. And like, once you've learned them, they're sort of canon and you know them, right? Because none of them are like world shifting, character changing things. And so now it's almost like watching a movie on mute or something. Like you can watch it and you already know that information. So in subsequent viewings and when you watch the final cut, you already have that information. So you're still getting some of the benefits, which arguably there are to the um, voiceover without having the voiceover, which of course, if you like the more atmospheric long shots without someone talking is a benefit for people like us who prefer the final cut, but you still can't deny that you got something out of that voiceover, whether you're listening to it while you watch the current version of the film, it's in your, you know, you watched it a million times. Like it's, it's there. Um, and then the other point I was going to make is that I think Patrick's going to speak on this a little bit more, but even in terms of, well, what was put out first? Well, this isn't the first thing that got put out. So even the theat- the U.S. theatrical release of the movie that we're talking about is a work of revision and especially the ending. So anyways, Patrick. Well, it's not a work of public revision. The public didn't have access to that. No, but the, anyways, I think we should move to Patrick because I think he has a lot to say about this. Well, some, some of the public did. Um, no, but, but you're right. It not, not everybody. It wasn't like, the, it wasn't like it was, it wasn't a public and thing. Like and only a few out. people saw it, you know? So well, I don't screen, think it's it a work. Screen. I mean, every film that you as, as, that is ever made in the Hollywood studio system, they go through a cut, people screen it, they make adjustments. So you can't say that, oh, there was a different version. There's always different versions of films. This is just what happens. Then they decided on a version and then they released it. So that's the version they released officially. That's it. The vision, the version that was before was something that they were working on. Much like uh, Denis said, yes, there was a four-hour cut. That's not the cut that we were going to ever release, and you're never going to see it, because that's not the film that I was making. And then there are people like, oh, I want to see it, I want to see it. That's not the film that was released. I'm just saying this because we can't talk about this other cut like it's some official thing that was like, oh, no, we're discarding it. That's just not how it happened. Well, okay, but I think... There's a difference between regular editing and yes, you do screenings and you get people's opinions because you want to see where are people laughing, where are people applauding, what are people grossed out by or freaked out by or whatever. Um, but it's hard to come up with examples where films were changed so drastically from the way they were initially no, screened. No, it's not. Really? I can tell you, I, I, I went to a screening of Panic Room with David Fincher uh, before that movie was released. Bunch of stuff was changed from that after, for the theatrical release. I saw another advanced screening of another. What other movie did I see? This was a few years back when I lived in LA the first time. A bunch of stuff was changed from it. This Rambo. is just this is just everyday. This is everyday Hollywood. They just make changes. I mean, even look at um, uh, Justice League, which was a shitstorm. It's a garbage film. That movie, the whole entire ending. Was Jamie re-shot. saw it seven times in theaters. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole ending was was scrapped and they reshot it and they put something out and now everyone wants to see the the what's the guy's name the original director who stepped out Snyder um they want to see the Snyder cut and even Jason Momoa was like oh the Snyder cut exists so this is just normal things sometimes endings are completely rewritten X-Men um first class the ending was completely rewritten and scrapped they reshot it they put it on there it's just so it's just not an anomaly. This is just normal Hollywood. And producers who step in who want control. And sometimes they take the 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 vision of of the um 
of the director. And sometimes like the directors don't get final cut. Like Ridley Scott, probably even after alien, he didn't have final cut. They fired him. He did not. Yeah. He did not have final cut privileges. Even in 2049, Denise said he did not have final cut privileges, but they gave him final cut at the end. So we are lucky in that, in that instance. Right. Uh, well, so I guess I hear what you're saying. And I'm not going to disagree with it, but I think that what is interesting in this case is because Many of the elements that were present in the work print became so fundamental to the film as it as it is known now for this very circuitous route where things were taken away and things were added and things were changed and things were brought back and things were changed and things were changed with characters and the ending and blah, blah, blah. And then now we're at a point where we have had seven full revisions of the film that we can watch all together and compare them. I think there is something – I see what you're saying about the work print. Being a, I mean, it's a work print. It's not even a. It's not Will a, you a briefly release, explain right? the work print just for people who haven't seen it or aren't familiar? Me, me? go ahead. No, whoever. Uh, so well, so so it's a prototype, right? Like a, a work print is is something that's designed as a working prototype of the film, the way that they think it will work, and then they they put it out in a in a polished version to test audiences. In this case, it was shown in Denver and Dallas in '82. Uh, and the test audiences really had a, a lot of problems with it. And uh, so a lot of revisions were made. And a lot of revisions were made very late in the film after Scott wasn't even there anymore. And he had moved on to other things. And, and Harrison Ford was called back to do the voiceovers famously and was not thrilled about it. Um, and uh, so so the, so the work print was sort of a, it was a proof of concept about this is what we think the vision will be. And then they changed it. What's interesting about the work print for Blade Runner, I think, is that it is extremely different to the way that the film was first shown. And it was a lot more modern, I think. And it was a lot more ambivalent. And because of that, uh, it it's, feels to me like it's more sort of pertinent to what Blade Runner is now than the theatrical cut. Here's, here's my, my issue with the theatrical release. And this, again, is subjective. I feel like the creative decisions that manifested in the theatrical release were put there almost exclusively to make the film more palatable to people who were not ready to push themselves totally intellectually or aesthetically. I am not, that's not to say I'm judging people sitting there in the early eighties for not being ready for Blade Runner. I probably would not have been either had I been alive. Um, but I am saying that I think when you watch the U S cut, you very clearly see that they had screened the work plan the work print that they had compiled feedback and that they had made it easier for audiences to audiences to digest and you notice when you see the director's cut that uh that when scott finally had the ability to say what he wanted it it was a completely different movie right and i think that the, the deeper point that i wanted to sort of touch on really briefly before we move on too much further especially to the voiceover in the ending going back to what you were saying earlier jamie about the fight that broke out where dan shot a guy on the on Fields of Calantha. I think um, <laughs> he's, he's been on a, a rampage. Got rid of the body. So, yeah, well, you, you're a professional. So <laughs> this hints at a deeper conversation that we don't really get into very frequently about the nature of creativity and the artistic process that is unique to the Hollywood studio system. And I say unique in the actual meaning of the word, which is that there's nothing else like that in the world. I mean, even, even in other studios, you know, on the planet – there is something about these enormous institutions in Hollywood and about the business cases that they present and about the return on investment principle, the star system, pushing things through, getting things tested, and getting them made as a commercial product that still has artistic value involving sets of people that are 
unbelievably vast and varied from around the world. You see the credits for a film like fucking, uh, you know, like 2049, even more so than the original Blade Runner film. I mean, the credits go on for so long, you lose track of how long you've been sitting in the seat. There are so many people involved in this stuff, right? And of those many, 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 many people, there are many stakeholders with many diverse needs and many audiences to respond to and many market needs to address, right? So for a Hollywood film to get made that comes across being artistically relevant, it has to go through so many hoops and so much change, and it's and it and it's so so for somebody to say that as something is released the first time that that's the definitive way that it should be released, I think is to do a disservice to who I think actually was holding the creative vision for this, which in my opinion was was Fancher, was Peoples, was Scott, to a degree was Ford was Rucker Hauer, was the the people who were actually creating the performances and creating the script, and Philip K. Dick, obviously, too, and had the actual the ideas and knew what they wanted to express, but were not allowed to express it by the studio that was putting the film out because they had backed it. So, to my mind, the actual definitive version of a movie is the version that allows the people who created it to be the closest and the most honest to how they intended to express what they wanted to express. And I don't think that the theatrical cut is that film. I think the theatrical cut is that vision prismed through the lens of commercialism. And I think that because of that, it's not actually saying what it wants to say in a way that it should have said it. Agreed. And arguably, you can even start before then and start with Fancher when he talks about the script being taken from him and a lot of things that he loved being rewritten. Would that be the original? Would that be the true vision? At this right. point, you know, who knows? I mean, and then even before that, you have Philip K. Dick being incredibly angry that Hampton Fancher is writing a script based off his novel. You know, Fancher himself said he hated it or they, you know, that's what the conversation was like. He had no respect for him. So if you get kind of into the granular discussion who's what are we seeing and whose vision you know like what vision is the right vision we don't really know but i think to dan's point maybe to the original point is the film that was released in 82 was not the intent of the filmmakers uh and the actors who partook in it so that film they were like well that's not the film that we we were agreed to make even that interview with um Harrison Ford in Future Noir, he says, this is what I signed up for. And they said that there was going to be no narration, and then they changed all of it. So, And the things that, that were changed were things that Scott had, like, no control because he didn't have Final Cut, right? So, like, the voiceover was something he hated that idea. He thought it was ridiculous, but he had to just sit there and let it happen. He didn't write it. He didn't record it. He wasn't even there. And likewise, the shots at the end of the film, which I'm sure we're going to get to soon— like he had, he had no involvement. It was literally reused footage from from Kubrick that had nothing to do with anything, but that just made it happier. You know, it, it was just so far away from what the actual movie was trying to say. So it's like, sure, it's it's watchable, it's palatable. I mean, I watched most of it tonight, and I was like, oh yeah, it's Blade Runner. It's nice to watch, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time again. But it's different. It's like it's like watching it, you know, uh, not being as complete as I think it it should be. Skin jobs. That's what Bryant called replicants. In history books, he's the kind of cop used to call black men niggers. I agree with that. And it, it makes you think, I, I don't know. I mean, you guys are artists. Certainly, I don't directly produce art, but it... I Bitch, was, why do you always bring this up? You're an artist, too. No, no. What Get I'm, out of here. Okay. Well, he processes things in a different way that we do. I think that's what he's trying to say. 
like so a that human. he appreciates everything that we appreciate and maybe even discusses it the way that we discuss it. He just, it, it iterates itself differently in his life. That's all he's saying. Yeah. And well, cause when you were talking about the uniqueness of Hollywood and what it's like to be basically having to put your work up in front of a corporate board and have these people who have totally different interests and totally different levels of investment financially and emotionally into your work that are then just going, they're not just like making suggestions. They're like, you have to do this. You have to do that. And I'm thinking of like, yeah, you know, like when you're making a painting or when you're writing music for, for yourself or to have a show, like you don't have to go in front of a corporate board and go and get people and have people slashing it and stuff in front of you. It's like, like that's an intense experience and what, what a different thing for being an artist. So that, you know, that's kind of what I was thinking about when you were talking about that. And uh, you're right. That's a really uh, unique thing to this, this specific type of art. But it's also American corporations in general as, as, as you know, a great picture as they want to paint and you're talking Every corporation, even the corporations that they might be the most socially responsible, at the end of the day, they're a business and they got to make money. So these studios, they're businesses first. So they're going to want to produce films. Now you have, you know, these smaller studios that are up and coming like A24, which is really well known for producing art from directors and writers. That's what they're after. Even streaming services like Netflix. I've read countless um, uh, accounts from directors and producers and writers who say Netflix, they just want to see scripts done. They, you know, they give you their input and they let you do what you want to do. And they're talking about how great it is for artists to, to come and just do well in that environment. Typical Hollywood studios, they're like, well, no, I don't like this. And even with Blade Runner, like I remember in Dangerous Days, they were talking about the producers and their producers were like, what is this movie? I don't even know what this is. They're seeing dailies and they can't make any sense of it. So because they couldn't make sense of it, they tacked on all of those things that for them made sense. And it was to for them, well, I need a return on this investment. If I don't understand it, Joe Schmo is not going to understand it. And it's a very counterintuitive to the way art is made. Art isn't made that right. way. Right, except but there are forms of art that are inherently like that, like architecture, for example, which yeah. I brought up in the past because that's something it I was going to. That, yeah. That's an interesting intersection, ha- right? Yeah. There's commercial yeah. needs, there's a business proposition, there's a budget, and you have to make art within it that speaks to a lot of people while still being somewhat, you know, honest to yourself. It's got to be functional. But, it's got to be all of these things. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be. You have to have fucking air conditioning work in it, but it also has to like <laughs> you know have some kind of artistic you know import, and I think. Um, but, but films, they just involve so many people doing so many different things. That's, that's what, to me, I mean, Jamie, you've been around this much more closer than I or Dan have. It just the, the amount of people and resources that go into films. The fact that a film like, did you see, by the way, Endgame is going to finish something like $40 million below Avatar after all that? That's of, funny. Uh, unless well, that's unless just, they do a re-release. It's not in America. That's worldwide, right? Yeah, but global. Yeah. Global, yeah. Oh, America blew it out of the water, but so did yeah. Force Awakens. Force Awakens is still number one by far domestic. Um, more than pretty... more than Endgame, Force Awakens. Yeah. No, really. Yep. Interesting. Not by much, but but the the worldwide gross for Endgame is just fucking out of control. But because because but when you look at uh, Avatar over time, it just like it, it had legs like crazy. Like it just always got these people every every weekend for four months. People went back to to go see it and to bring their friends because it was such a spectacle, right? Anyway, my point, my point being, when I see a movie like Endgame and I'm so blown away by it because it feels like a character piece that somehow exists with a budget that's the size of, that's larger than many countries' annual 
gross income and involves 10,000 fucking people and has to resolve narrative continuity on 22 movies and somehow still has a cohesive artistic thing to say. I'm like, how the fuck does that happen in the Hollywood studio system, right? I find that so impressive. And I feel like, and I, I want to, that's kind of no, neither here nor there, but I want to say, as we're talking, I'm being reminded of something that we've unpacked in the past, which is why was Ridley Scott the executive producer on this, right? In the past, we've sort of thought it might, might have been, well, he's obviously a good person to like have around, and maybe he like won't make too much of a fuss, and he'll be kind of like okay with it and kind of chill, and Scott Free can, can use the business, and it'll be okay. We've kind of we've kind of justified it by saying like he's somebody who, you know, would want to direct it, but if he's not going to direct it, at least like give him a job to do, so he's not going to get in the way. I think that Ridley Scott executive produced it so that Denny Villeneuve could get to a point where he could have a product put out in the studio would cow to him because Ridley Scott, as we know for better or for worse, gets whatever the fuck he wants made made because he's eighty two. And he's like one of the greatest directors in the 20th century, and nobody says no to him anymore, for better or for worse. Um, so having him executive producing 2049 means you have an executive producer who's basically a juggernaut. And I, I'm sure that Villeneuve really benefited from that. But what's interesting about that, even though this obviously isn't a conversation about 2049, is that post-release, two years later, almost two years later, you hear or read excerpts from Ridley Scott saying it was too long. I would have done this. I would have done that. Blah, blah, blah. He comes at it from mm. this complete business. Like this is a, like, he's almost reflecting the system that he fought against for years and years yeah. and years. It's yeah. very strange, but like the miracle that 2049 is, it was allowed to be what, it, what it was intended right. to be. Right. And that's because Scott has been through that process so many times that even though he might have a different opinion, he backed off enough to not get in the way of Villeneuve. Yeah. And he yeah. said that a lot. He, he was like, it takes one to know one. I'm going to let him do his vision for this film, you know, and we've really benefited from it. But going back to the theatrical cut, um, I find that the uh, when you guys have rewatched it, does the feeling, does it hit you differently? Does it feel like a different movie on an emotional level when you watch it? You process it differently. I can't answer that. That's a tough question. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so impacted by, sort of the big story now. Both films, that to me, the 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 theatrical edition feels like expanded universe. I don't, I don't even process it. it but I also I will say today when I was watching it, it was kind of on in the background. You know, I wasn't really like, oh, I was just waiting to hear the narration because I know where I sit emotionally with it. So I didn't need to like, um, but usually when I'm watching the final cut, nothing, I'm not doing anything else. When I turn on 2049, it has my full attention. Um, but the theatrical edition, I don't know if it was just because, oh, we're recording an episode tonight, so I need to kind of listen. But I was actually really hoping to be emotionally impacted. Like, how is this different? And the only thing that I could say was there was the scene where he, after he kills Zora, he talks about all I could think about was Rachel, Rachel. And it kind of clued you in that this man was thinking about this woman or thing. Um, maybe more than we expected him to. That's the only difference that I could, I don't know about you, Dan. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that the voiceover forces onto the film that I think hurts it is it reduces the ambiguity about certain things. And so, for example, how Deckard feels about Rachel changes a lot throughout the film. Um, but in the final cut, you're not being beaten over the head about 
what the person writing that voiceover wanted you to think that Deckard was thinking. You're allowed to sort of make your own subjective choices. And that's what I love really about any role. Um, I felt really strongly about that um, watching Ryan Gosling act in First Man, where I'm like, this is so brilliant to not give him too many lines because he's acting with his eyes and you're filling in the story of what's going through his head. What is he thinking right now? And I, I think we're a lot... It, it's difficult to do when you're watching scenes with Deckard during a voiceover. You're not left that emotional space and that mental space to sort of interpret his emotions and his acting for yourself. And I think, to be honest, even if the um, voiceover was written really well, like let's say that Harrison Ford got to participate and Ridley and, and Fancher wrote it, which I'm sure would have improved it, there's still th- something to be said. I mean, you can find films that have voiceover where you're like, this is really effective use of voiceover and it's really good and necessary, but they're more rare. A lot of the times when you have voiceover, you're like, oh, I'd rather just figure this out by myself. I'd rather be emotionally invested in the scene and be absorbing it um, with my mind and my body instead of being told what's going on. Um, and I think I, Patrick probably reads more than the two of us put together, but I think that's probably something you see a lot in books as well. Um, meaning obviously someone's telling you a story in a book, but there's a difference between when it's being told through dialogue and through what the characters are experiencing emotionally versus, um, how much a narrator is putting in their input. And of course, tons of books have narration and it works great for that medium, totally different medium, but there's a similar impact there. I think in, in film, it's just, it's much more abrupt and, um, not subtle, especially in this example of the theatrical release of Blade Runner. So I think that that's definitely one of the biggest emotional impacts is that there's an emotional stunting that it does to me when I'm watching the film as compared to uh, other versions, especially the final cut. That, that would be my answer. Yeah, I definitely feel that way too. I think it's worth pointing out that most of that voiceover exists as what? Exposition, right? It's like, this is what's going on. This is what I'm thinking about. Oh, now I'm going to go here because he told me to do this, but I don't like that job. My ex-wife's a bitch. I'm blah, blah, blah. It's, it's like, it's just all of these things that, you know, you can figure out on your own or not figure out on your own, but they don't have any real import to the storytelling, in my opinion. It's, it's things, it, the narrative stands on its own as an allegory without that. Um, and Dan, I, I, I agree with you 100%, and that's something that I was hoping you would mention or one of you guys would mention, which is that to me... As we've mentioned on previous episodes, especially in the Deckard episode, Deckard as a character isn't the reason I watch Blade Runner. He's basically just this cipher for me to experience the film through. And he and part of why his character works so great for me in the, in the final cut is that he really is almost just this kind of avatar for the viewer. He's just he's just like this person who's strangely normal and dejected in a in a phantasmagorical universe that grounds it for us and it makes it like some feel like I'm I'm walking through it. He's like Perseus in the in the Odyssey. In the, uh, Odyssey. <laughs> the, 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 the Odyssey. Um and when you put exposition in there and when you just have him constantly explaining what's going on, he's externalizing that. So you you lose that cipher aspect. And also you're just being told everything so you stop paying attention the way that you would pay attention if you didn't know. If you throw somebody into, uh, if you, <laughs> it's a violent way to say it, but say say you push somebody in, into a dark room and close the door, right? And then give them an hour. I'm assuming this is consensual. This is not, I'm not talking about like fucking killing somebody. I'm saying, but like, say, say you challenge somebody, say, hey, are, I'm going to put you in, in an escape room. Are psychedelics involved or? 
<laughs> Maybe. We'll see. You play your cards right. <laughs> you put them in a dark room and you give them an hour. They will know that room so intimately by the time they come out because they will have reverted to deeper parts of their psyche to understand it. They will use feel. They will map it geometrically in their head by trying to find little gateways to open up and trying to like just search the floor for gradations to see if there's a trap door in it. They will know it in a way that is so much deeper than had you had you shown them the room, right? If you give the person a picture of the room with the lights on, they'll have no fucking emotional attachment to it. It won't be anything that they – because you don't have to because you, you're being told what to do. So to me, what's great about the final cut is that it feels like I'm in a dark room and I'm using senses that I don't normally use to find my way through it. And in the final cut, that sense is my intuition and is in my instinct and my heart. It's it's not even in my head. You know, we talk so much about these things being cerebral. I think the final cut is not cerebral. I think the final cut is 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 almost too uh, uh, primal for that. It's 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 images. It's like sound and light and fury and beauty. You know, um, and that's why I think it's so it's so beautiful as like a, as an artistic statement. I want to say one more thing too about the voiceover, and then we can move on to the ending. Um, Unless you guys have more to talk about with that. I have a it's, couple it's things, worth, but that's it. Okay, well, I'll make this quick. It's worth pointing out that there is voiceover in the work print. Um, it's only, it only happens once. Dan, do you remember when that is? Uh, not right now. It's when it's when uh, Batty dies. He talks oh, about it. Oh, right. And in the theatrical cut, that is my least favorite voiceover in the whole mm-hmm. fucking mm-hmm. movie. And I laugh when that happens because you take – what is it? And I and I really feel like this is almost objective truth at this point. You take one of the five greatest scenes ever filmed, which is Batty's death, which is just like the most poetic fucking thing ever, and then you cut it off within seconds by Deckard telling you that he died. Like why the why is that necessary? You 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 have him saying goodbye to the world. You've had him slowly dying for this whole fucking movie. You have a dove fly away. It's pretty clear what's happening, and then he cuts off that moment by saying, "And then he died." <laughs> it's just like why why would you why do we need that, right? Right, right? But yet that voiceover is present in an even dumber way in the work print, which I find just unbelievably weird. And the work print, of course, is something Scott had input in. So, you know, who's to say? Jamie, go ahead. No, I, I was just thinking about um some other differences, some minor differences. The moment where Batty says to Deckard, it's uh what is something about fear? It's uh to live in fear. What's that line again? Painful to live in fear, isn't it? That's what yeah. it is to be a slave. Yes. And the edit they use for the final cut is not the one that's in the theatrical cut. What's in the final cut is far more emotive and uh, just visceral. But the theatrical cut, it's just like, it's painful to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it's like to be. Like, it's very kind of nonchalant. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then the other difference is I want more life, fucker as opposed to I want more life father. And I remember not remembering. Right, that's a great one, yeah. Yeah, and I remember not remembering the diff, like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't remember hearing him say fucker or father. And then I watched a theatrical cut today, and they're like, he says fucker. And I'm like, yeah, that wasn't inappropriate. It wasn't in character for him. He's, there's more going on in Batty's head than that. It wasn't, he wasn't approaching this man like, you piece of shit. He was approaching this man like, I need your help. And then finally, when then he couldn't get that help, he snapped. So I felt like it was an appropriate change to say father. You know, I was reminded of something recently that I'd read before in Future Noir, but I'd forgotten about it. And it was that um, Rutger Hauer's direction for that scene was to try 
and blend the word fucker and father and read it sort of ambiguously so that you couldn't tell which word he was saying, which is tough to do and, you know, maybe didn't work out. But that was the original intent of the script. But then didn't, didn't he accidentally say fucker the first time and they thought it was like funny and then they were like, well, why don't we try to keep keep some of that? I feel like I remember reading that that it was an accident. Then they decided to go. I don't know. Maybe Is that the only time you hear the F word in that movie. I think so. In that version. I don't think you hear it. Do you hear it any other time? I think, I think that's the only time I think, well, except for the beginning when, uh, when Deckard uh, says to Gaff, when he's like, tell him I'm fucking eating. <laughs> that's, that's the only, does he say that? Did. Does he say fucking no, I'm just eating? Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, what? I'm, for, I'm like, totally right misremembering the this movie. movie. Tell him I'm fucking eating. <laughs> That'd be a good line. No, yeah, you're right. Because think about what this says, right? If if Batty is say is saying fucker in that scene, that means that his intent, because he's gotten to where he was trying to go. He fucking fled Mars to get in that room, right? This is not an accident. This has been a long journey for him. And he gets to that journey, and what he says at the capstone of that journey should be what he actually meant all along, right? So in saying fucker, he's saying that he's there out of anger. And he's not. And that's why Batty's a brilliant character. He's not there because he's mad. He's there because he's desperate. He's there because he is running out of time, and he needs life. And that is a very powerful thing to say, right? That is that is coming from fear. When, when Batty kills Tyrell, it is a sad moment. And it's on Batty's. Batty doesn't want to do that, right? That's happening. He's snapping and he is losing control. It's not like he went there to murder him. He went there to live longer. And when he finds out that he can't, he loses control of himself. And I feel like that, if you go if you go into it being so uh, blasé about saying the F word, then it just means that you're just there as like an angry teenager. It just becomes such a dumb character, which is crazy because Batty's probably my favorite character in any film ever made. And, and, I, and I watch him in the theatrical cut and I'm like, who is this? Which is crazy because then you look at him in the dick book. Oh, man. I, <laughs> knew, I knew I saw that coming out of your mouth from a mile away. I was like, oh, you saw that coming out of my mouth. You look at him in the in um, in Dados, and he's he's just nothing. He, he's he's a complete desiccated character that is nothing but kind of a vague threat. He's just the scary robot. You know what I mean? You look at him in in the final cut, and he's just like a, a po- He's a piece of poetry set in motion. You know, and I think without without it's funny because, like, I, I, having spoken to Fancher about this quite a bit, like, we know that he saw Batty the way he's portrayed in the final cut. He was going for that, right? He wasn't going for this threatened, angry punk character. He was going for something much more Nietzschean than that, much more um, uh, transcendent. Oh, yeah. Right? And I don't, I don't think anything sums up your point about ambiguity, uh, complexity and about the fact that he wasn't just being some pissed off teenager is the fact that he kisses Tyrell while he's killing him. I mean, come on. Exactly. How do you get, how can you get more complex and ambiguous than that? You know, he's like, he even has love for his father as he's losing control and as he's losing his life. And as he realizes that there's no way out and he kills him. I mean, it's amazing. I don't know why he saved my life. Maybe in those last moments, he loved life more than he ever had before. Not just his life, anybody's life, my life. All he'd wanted were the same answers the rest of us want. Where do I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do was sit there and watch him die. 
Um, do you guys want? I know we got to close because it's uh, getting extremely late. Do you want to just kind of jump to the ending? Yes. Let's do it. Okay. So, uh, so to me, that, that that is the single greatest strike against the theatrical cut having any claim to being the definitive version. For, if no other reason than the fact that it immediately negates Gaff's line, which is one of the great lines again in any fucking movie about you know too bad she won't live but then again who does because then we find out via voiceover 10 seconds later that oh never mind she doesn't have a, a four-year lifespan she's fine she's gonna be alive like we, like he says this line that is so iconic and then it just immediately gets canceled out by a fucking voiceover narration as they're driving away well but i don't know but what to your point though i don't know if gaff knows how long rachel has to live i think gaff that's is a thing just, i think gaff is just making a too bad she won't live like none of us are gonna live you know right but right, yes, but that's the thing yes. that, is that he doesn't and know, and we don't know. Decker and then you have oh, because, she's going to live forever. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or and not because, forever. Because, but. But because, because he doesn't know, and we don't know, it means that it could be anything. Yes. And that's why that line works, is because that yeah. line is so applicable to so many situations. Mm-hmm. It's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does, right? Oh, it's... I take that line differently than than you probably do. Like mm-hmm. To me, that line has a, a lot of resonance, that, and it's something that I, I've thought about quite a bit. Because when I think about it, I think about it like Batty, again, because I love Batty. He's my, he's my way into the movie. And I think about it like really living, right? Like who actually does really live? And to me, Batty was the one who actually achieved that in the end. Like He was the one who really found life, even though it was, it was, it was so um, short. So, and I, I don't know how you guys interpret that line, but 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 that's the way I always look at it. And being told a that it, that that line actually wasn't a piece of poetry; it was just a, an actual like it was just Gaff being randomly a villain for some reason, and and cackling as they as they fled away, being like, "Oh, have fun, you know, go have sex once. She's gonna die in a matter of days," which is basically what what it becomes in the in the in the uh, theatrical cut. It, it's like that he's saying this, and then he's actually just wrong for some reason because of I don't know story. Um, it's just it just robs the poetry of that moment for me in a, in a way that it, that feels like uh, almost like a molestation of the material. Yeah, and and I mean I I definitely I don't have that different of a reading than you. I I see that as one of the more philosophical lines in the film um, on the subject of the fact that the film makes you think about. I mean, yes, the nature of the reality and the other you know PK Dick things that we've talked about, but um, what is the meaning of really living for real and having a, and having a true meaningful life. Um, and then on top of it, um, there's also the Decker rep, you know, that line buys into the Decker rep where it's supposed to make Deckard question like, well, she, you know, um, she's not going to live because she has an expiration date. Are you sure you don't have an expiration date would be the like not poetic way to say that portion of that statement. But again, it's a complex statement that you could apply to all kinds of different parts of the plot. So I agree that negating that statement at the end with the voiceover is a terrible way to end the movie. And I also think that wh- how I've read the scene and we, I've discussed this on prior episodes when Deckard finds that, unicorn on the ground and you hear that voiceover and you see that look in his eyes i've always interpreted that as deckard saying hearing don't just be a zombie in your life live your life that's what he heard it wasn't that oh you might be a replicant or oh about rachel that was a wake-up call for deckard go live that's the way i've always thought of it too and uh, I, i do i think it's a beautiful it's a beautiful moment and the final cut captures it Absolutely perfectly. I mean, again, you know, they're in the car and you see, and then what's funny is Deckard repeats that, a version of that line again in the car. He goes, I don't know how long 
she has to live, but who, who, who does know how long or something? Like, he repeats the yeah, line it's, again. It's just the same word. It's yeah. the same line, but just worse. Right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's just like, okay. And then he looks at her and she's blah, 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 blah. And that's it. And then you have all that, you know, the mountains and all those shining things. And it's just, <laughs> it's just so yeah, fucking it just ridiculous. Was like, what is it's this? What shining. were they doing? And it's also like it's it's against canon because the reason they're in the megapolis of, of this Tokyo Los Angeles thing is because that's the only place you can survive. Like the world doesn't look like that. That's the point. The reason they're stuck there is because the world is falling apart and you have to live in these giant cities to aggregate so that you can survive. Right. It's but there's island, there's right? these beautiful hillsides just like, oh, oh, look, if you just drive to the hillside, the acid rains over and it's sunny. And yeah, look at all the greenery. Rain. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's let's go beautiful. build a cabin. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fucking. It's like a commercial for like a cigarette in 1982. Yeah. It's like they were just in this convertible, smoking in the sun. Yeah, like it's, if it's, the world looked like that, then everything that's happening in Los Angeles doesn't make sense. Doesn't even matter, right? Then it's like it... just leave Los Angeles. Yeah, right? yeah, totally. Yeah, it's crazy. It's but I want to say thing. one more thing about the ending. Quick, is that in the? Do you remember how the work print ends, Dan? And uh, David, oh Jamie, my god, it's so much worse. Yeah, the conversation. I have seen that. I've heard the conversation. In the work print? Well, the conversation between Rachel and Deckard and Rachel says, it's almost like we're made for each other. Are you talking about that? No, no, no. no. I'm I'm talking about the very final shots of the work print. Okay. Okay. So it ends with the doors closing the elevator and Vangelis' music playing. Right. You know what me and Jamie just did? And we can even cut this out. We were confusing the deleted scenes for the end of the work print. Because in, yeah. oh, yeah. in the Fucking deleted scenes, scenes yeah. there's all this extra ridiculous conversation about Rachel talking about how she's like the happiest <laughs> yeah, she'd ever been. That. And I'm yeah. just like, where does this fit into anything? This is like even yeah. worse than the burn it. <laughs> yeah, please burn it. But just there's burn, some burn there's some certainly some nuggets there in terms of ideas that they went back to for 2049. <clears throat> Rachel questioning, have, were we made for each other using that line? So could Deckard also have been made for her? All of those things, which is very interesting. It didn't need to be in any film. Right. Well, the pacing is just the worst. Yeah, right? it's terrible. It's terrible. But I do think we should keep that in the edit because that's an interesting – That's it's interesting how that moment um, – because what you're talking about is, is also really important to unpack as well, the deleted scenes. you know. Um, but but what, I, what I think is so brave and so fascinating about the work print is that it ends the way that the final cut and the director's cut ends, which is um, – completely open and completely mysterious and completely exciting you know i mean i think that the, the final shots of blade runner as as i love it the final cut are just some of the great final shots like that's just, just that that propulsive score the elevator closing they're going into a future that could be it could be a, a nightmare or it could be transcendent beauty and they have no way of knowing and we will never know because we're not there and that's where our story separates and deckard no longer is that that cipher for us because he has become actualized he is now a character he's not just something we can watch the movie through right like when he finds rachel and they decide to run that moment of agency is the first fucking thing he's done that whole movie that meant something yeah. that is the first thing he has done yeah. that is his first moment of agency in the whole thing you know he's not being dragged around he's doing he's doing what he actually wants to do and he's doing it because he found Rachel. And because he found Rachel, he's a character. And that's why when we see him in 2049, he resonates with us. He's not just this kind of empty, uh, you know, bored protagonist who he was for much of the rest of the movie in, in 2019. He's a real character with real gravitas to him. And it takes the ending. And so what I love is that when those doors close, I have this physical sensation. For one thing, just of being excited because I love the way it ends. But also, I feel like he is separating himself from me and I am no longer in that and I'm going to leave that 
place behind and leave those people behind, and they will go into wondrous futures that I will never be a part of, and that's how it should be, because movies should not end when the credits roll. They should begin in ways we can't see them any longer. Which throws, which is so interesting you mentioned, because most of the time you think of an open door, a door is being opened. Blade Runner ends with a closed door, but it feels like the door was opened. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And why is it like that? Yeah, it feels like that door has closed, they're gone. Like, it reminds me of, sorry, it reminds me of, it's a kind of funny comparison, but the sound of music. When they're coming, they're like, where are, you know, they're like the Von Trapp family singers. And they keep introducing him, but they're gone. And in that moment, we don't know where they are. They're free. Right. You know? Right. Right. I will say that the, the, in closing, you know, if we want to wrap this, I do feel as I approach the Blade Runner universe, I feel like it's one big story. Um, but when I watch the theatrical cut, it doesn't feel like one big story. It feels like something small. Whereas for me, after the, the, the final cut ends, I feel like this is a story about Rachel. Like it becomes, these people become, um, gods in a way rachel and deckard become these godlike whereas in the begin in in the original with the theatrical cut they just like oh hum they're off in the you know they just took off to the to the mountains and they're living in there you know as opposed to these people are responsible for possibly the revolution of these this species of of created humans essentially and it isn't for our eyes anymore yeah right just like in the bible you can't look Mm -hmm. at the face of god and come away unscathed right like they are entering a plane of existence that we shouldn't see yeah we are not privileged and and what i was going to say before and i I just remembered it is that the whole rest of the movie there's this kind of semi-voyeuristic thing going on when we see deckard for us meaning like he clearly doesn't want to be starring in this movie as a character right like he is not enjoying this at all he is uh like like it's it's like almost like he doesn't have the ability to like make us move move on because because he because he he doesn't want the story to be told right and we are forcing him to tell it by watching him and by making him the central character in this thing and when he shuts that door he says okay we're done he says now it's my story it's not your story anymore this is my story and that is something i've never seen a movie that does that before i have never seen a film end like that and in the beginning it's so telling and it's such a contrast where he doesn't want to go meet Bryant. I'm done. No, I'm doing, I'm doing, I know I'm doing my own thing. Sorry. You got to fucking eating. And he, and then he, he, they force him to go to Bryant's and he's like, no, I was twice as quick when I walked in here, blah, blah, blah. And Bryant's like, no, you got to do it. And then Deckard is finally at the end. I don't give a shit. He knows they're going to hunt Rachel. He knows they're going to hunt him, but he chooses to live that life as opposed to a life that's safe. And that's a hero. Exactly. Just like an alien, when Ripley goes back to, to save Jonesy, right? We mentioned in the past that, that that is the first heroic thing she does in that movie. Other than that, she's just being brave and following protocol, right? Yeah, yeah. But by going back and doing the simple thing right at the end of the movie of going back to get the cat, putting herself in danger, she is becoming an actualized hero. I don't know if she's it's heroic of, of Ripley, to be honest. I think it's more selfish. I think she loves the cat. I don't know if it's she's being a hero, but... I, I, get well, what you're I, I, I interpret it as a heroic act, and I always have. I've, I've, Interesting. May, maybe you're right. I, I'm not saying it's like she's saving, you know, children from a burning building, but it's a small act of humanity in the midst of an inhuman yes. situation. Yeah. That's. I guess that's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. It's. 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 She is saying, not only can I stand up to this creature that is terrifying me, but I can actually go back and do a small act of kindness and humanity in the midst of that, and that is heroism, right? Heroism is not putting a fire out in a building. Heroism is saving the people inside of it, right? 
to me, her escaping into the Narcissus is not necessarily heroic. It's just admirable. But her going back and getting yep. Jonesy to me feels heroic. Yeah. So well, which is interesting. That's like Deckard. Yeah. It's an interesting contrast as well between Rachel and Deckard, where Rachel discovers who she is. What does she do right away? She kind of bolts. She's like, no, this isn't. I know they're after me. No one really knows where she is, although she ends up being in her apartment, I guess. But still, um, no one really knows in the in the into in the immediate where this thing in their eyes is. Uh Rachel doesn't conform. She's refusing to conform. And uh she's sort of questioning um Deckard like I'm not going to conform. What do I do? Please help me not conform to this, this destiny that I have to, that they're telling me that I have to live, which is being decommissioned or um, what do you call it? Uh, retired. So I, it's, it's, I think I, you feel that tension where Rachel's trying to almost pull Deckard away from that. Like, no, this, you know, why don't you question things? Like she says, you know, have you ever, taking that test yourself question things question what you know have you ever i mean shot one of the first things she mistakes? says to him yeah that's the, one of the that's yeah. like the third thing she says to him is, have you ever retired a human by mistake yeah she's um, already um, somewhat of an a uh, uh an agent of her own destiny in her own mind she's already but deckard who is arguably the human is not he's succumbed it's such an interesting parallel at any rate we were getting right. back to the way the the theatrical version ends as opposed to the final cut. And certainly the final cut, it just does it really, really well. And we could probably talk a lot about it. We'll probably, we'll, we'll, we will most certainly discuss it more. This is part one of a two part episode. We want to kind of move through this. We want to talk a little bit more about the work print, the other editions, the director's cut, which is different than the final cut. There are, differences there in terms of what they had to do a lot of that is available via dangerous days and sort of the things that they had to do to go and restore it but we want to cover it we want, we feel like it's necessary so we'd like to thank everybody for listening thank you for uh being on this journey it's good to be back this will be our, our regular our regular format back to our normal format for quite some time so all right thanks guys thank you guys find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. <laughs>